Good morning. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here at Mill City. We're so glad that you're joining us wherever you are joining us from. I've never given a sermon on Valentine's Day, at least not to my knowledge, where Valentine's Day actually fell on a Sunday. So I thought I'd start out with some fun facts that I learned about Valentine's Day by Googling it. Okay. The first fact is that there actually were three different St. Valentines recognized by the Catholic Church, and no one's really sure which one of these guys this holiday is actually stemming from. Um, they're all different. They all have very different stories. The only thing they have in common is that they were all either martyred or beheaded. Okay, so that's an interesting thing for them to have in common, but they're not sure which Valentine, St. Valentine, we are commemorating. The second fun fact I learned was it's believed to be celebrated in February because that's when St. Valentine died, whichever Whichever guy was the correct guy, uh, it's commemorating his death, which does not sound romantic to me at all, but that's, that's apparently what happened. And then third, it's only been celebrated for the last couple hundred years in the way in which it's commemorated with commercial, in com a commercial way, right? With cards and love notes and gifts and chocolate and all that kind of stuff. That's not how it originated, but that's how it's become. And originally, even when it was commercialized like this, the idea was that you would share love with anybody, like in your life, the people that you love, not just your romantic partners and things like that. And so I think like the kids who are giving everyone in the class a Paw Patrol Valentine this weekend or next week, that's more like the, 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 the traditional way of doing it. So I just think, you know, the kids, they, they know what they're doing here and we maybe should take some notes from them. So I don't know about you, but if we're gonna celebrate uh, the day a saint got beheaded, then why not go old school and tell everyone you love how much you love them, okay? <laughs> you can use a Paw Patrol, Valentine, whatever it needs to be, but it doesn't have to just be a significant other, right? So that's my challenge for all of us this Valentine's Day. Think of somebody who you haven't expressed in a while, how much you love them, and text them or call them and tell them how much you love them. It doesn't have to only be romantic partners. Can we do that? It's also also probably worth saying that uh, this day can be so weird for people, right? Because there's all these expectations and you don't know if you're meeting them for this person in your life or these people in your life. And then it's definitely super awkward for people who are not in a relationship or who are in a really tough season in their relationship, obviously. And so I just think it's worth saying just public service announcement. You are loved and valued because what makes you significant is not a significant other. I mean, for all of us, whether you're in a relationship or not, what makes you significant is not your significant other. I don't think any of the three St. Valentines would want people to, to get their worth from anything except for the worth that comes from being a loved child of God. Today we're gonna to talk about just that, the worth we have as loved children of God. Because a lot of us struggle at times to truly and deeply know our worth, don't we? If we're being honest, to believe how deeply we are loved by God. It's tough for us to do that because humans don't love each other well, we don't tend to love everybody well, as as much as we want to, right? It's a struggle for us. And I think sometimes how we experience love between other humans, it can keep us from truly knowing the depth of the love that God has for us in our lives. And here's why this is important. And here's what I hope we can take with us today. We can't live into our role in God's story if we don't experience how deep God's love is for us. We can't live into our role in God's story if we can't experience how deep God's love is for us. This year we're going through the story of God by looking at each genre found in the Bible. And the first one we're looking at is historical narrative. And we're calling it the backstory because we want to understand our role in God's story now as we are joining in what God's doing in the world. 
And so we need to understand the backstory, the backstory of God. I talked a few weeks ago about how uh, when I met my husband, JD, it was in the middle of our 30s. And so there was a lot of life we had both lived before we had come to the point of us meeting each other and deciding to get married. And so I needed to understand his backstory so I could learn to, to know more about him and to love him better. And some of you who know some weird stories about JD would say, how did that cause you to fall more in love with this weird guy? But it did because I knew more about him. And, and some of the, the stories, as goofy as they were, were so endearing. Well, when it comes to our understanding of God, it can be difficult to wrap our minds around this backstory because it's not written to us and it was written so long ago, but it's an important venture for us. Because if we love somebody and we're in a love relationship with God, we want to understand the backstory. Because also, understanding the backstory helps us understand our role in the story now. It's so critical for us to be able to do that. We're more empowered to live into our role as people who are a part of the redemption story of God in the midst of our everyday lives. So we see this genre of historical narrative throughout the, the various books of the Bible. Okay, So we see Genesis, Exodus, almost all historical narrative, uh, parts of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, it's also the main genre of Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, parts of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, some snippets of Job and the prophets, and also the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, all narrative. And since there's so much of this genre present in the 66 books of the Bible, we're not going to go each story, story by story, while we'll, we'll talk about some of them, but rather we're going to continue to look at this overarching story of God, uh, we call it the big God story with our kids, or in theological terms, it's called the meta-narrative, the narrative of all the narratives. And we're looking for themes that we see from beginning to end. We're looking for the themes that we see that string all the way through this meta-narrative from beginning to end. And today, since today is one of the St. Valentine's Days, one of those guys, whoever it was, we're going to start with perhaps one of the most important themes in all of the Bible. One of the most important themes of the big story of God, and that is the love of God, okay? Hopefully it's noticeable at Mill City and at many other faith communities that God's love is a central theme. It's a shame if that's not clear, right? It's what many of our worship songs are about. It's, it's in our mission, right, that we are people who seek to pass on the love of God, loving our community in the name of Jesus. That's what it's all about. And I think we all know that when we talk about love in English, it's a bit messy, right? Because we use the word love, for so many different things. I'm sure you've thought about this before. Like all those things that we said that we can't live without, right? I love my dogs. I can't live without my dogs. I can't live without coffee. I love it. I love coffee. Obviously, we love people in our lives and so many other things, but when we try to grasp what it means that God loves us, we're limited in how to express it because I would use the same words for my feelings about coffee as I would for God's love for me or my attempt to love God, right? So it's a difficult thing for us in English. And in ancient Hebrew, as well as in ancient Greek, uh, which the Old Testament and New Testament were primarily written in, they express this depth of meaning when it comes to love in ways that I think we kind of miss out on in English. In the Bible, God's love is first expressed in the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. It's an action word, a verb. So sometimes it's translated as mercy or loving kindness in English. But those words also kind of fail to really get to the depth of meaning of chesed. So here's my best stab at how to define this unique and deep kind of love that's specifically from God, okay? That we, when we see 
that in the Old Testament, specifically in Hebrew, what it means. Okay, so this is my my Steph translation, Steph, Steph definition. All right. Hesed, God's generous actions of unswerving and steadfast loyalty, faithfulness, mercy, and kindness to even the most undeserving. God's generous actions of unswerving and steadfast loyalty, faithfulness, mercy, and kindness to even the most undeserving. And that last part is really important to even the most undeserving. There's a beautiful video from the Bible Project that helps us grasp the the depth of meaning and shows us how this theme carries from the beginning of God's story right through to the story of Jesus. Check this out. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. Notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's chesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the promised land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threatened to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asked God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course, he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist 
that's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, and then 26 times repeats, his chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is, generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing Last week, Dr. Peter Vogt was talking about the reality of these historical narratives and how they were written to a very different audience than who we are today. I really encourage you to go back and check it out because it was meant as kind of a foundational teaching to help us launch into these historical narratives in this genre. So Moses, the leader in the Old Testament, wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it's called the Torah or the five books of Moses. Originally, it was oral history, where the stories would be told and people would listen rather than read, of course, because cultures were not literate cultures at that time. So you can imagine people, and I want you to do this, I want you to imagine people just gathering around to hear Moses recount what God had done, what God had said. Exodus 34, 6 was mentioned in the video. It's actually God describing God's self to the people. This is what it says. The Lord... God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So imagine you're sitting in the audience and Moses says, this is who God is. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And now last week, Dr. Vogt talked about how there was so many other narratives about who these supposed gods were in the ancient Near Eastern perspective, the perspective of the people who would have been listening to the stories that Moses was sharing with them. And Moses is, ex is sharing to them his experience of Yahweh, of Yahweh God, in an effort to distinguish Yahweh from all these other narratives that were swirling around the people. The ancient Near Eastern stories about gods, the Egyptian gods, the mythical Greek gods, things like that, these gods were not fans of humans, except for the work that humans would sometimes do for them, uh, potentially abusing humans sexually, things like that. That was part of those narratives. There's even stories of, for instance, the flood that we read about in Genesis 8, where the stories of why that flood took place uh, in these other narratives is so that the, the gods could get together and make a human being soup that the gods could eat. These are the kind of stories that were, that, the, that were just swimming around these Israelites, these people of God. The ancient Near Eastern gods were always angry. You better not cross them. And if you, and your job as a human was to try not to tick them off. And if you are really good, you might make one of them happy enough not to smite you, okay? 
So the idea of what a God is like would not be like what was described in that short verse in Exodus 34. Instead, people would assume something very different. In fact, here's what I think that they would assume. This is my, my guess. Instead of what we just read, I think they'd hear, they would assume, the Lord is vengeful and a compassionless God, always angry and abounding in selfishness, rage, and lust. So try for a minute just to get your head around that picture of God, because it's probably not exactly what you picture. You're sitting there listening to Moses, and you assume the Lord is vengeful and compassionless God, always angry and abounding in selfishness, rage, and lust. But then you hear Moses say, and God describes God's self, and God says, and you're ready to hear something probably negative, and you hear the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This would have been so shocking. That would have been unheard of for somebody to say that any God was like that. And here, here Moses is saying, your God, our God, Yahweh God. Nobody would even make up something like that about the gods. Not to mention monotheism or the idea that there was only one God. That would have been mind-blowing to people as well. Moses' five books, the Torah, tell a very different story about who God is than any of the other stories that the people had heard about the gods. And also there's only this one God, right? Not a bunch of gods playing around with humans' lives as though they are disposable Lego toys or whatever, like that you can just, they can just do whatever they want with and dispose of when they want to. When you read the Torah, you'll see that God is a God who does care when people hurt each other. God does care when people betray God. And even God gets angry. God is not passive. But again and again, God chooses love. Again and again, God chooses mercy, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, loyalty to these people, even when they don't deserve it. So the people who were listening then to Moses speaking, kind of like us today, I don't think we want a God who doesn't care about injustice, right? We want a God who's, who's active and who cares when things are broken and hurting. We want a God who cares about these things. And sure, there is a lot to wrestle with when it comes to the descriptions of God in the Old Testament, because remember, it was just such a different context and there's so much work for us to do. And it's work that we can do, but it's, it's challenging for sure. Because it's such a different lens, it's such a different culture to ours. But the critical thing that we need to take away from this understanding of these five books of Moses and how Moses is describing Yahweh God is that all the stories of the gods, the stories about the gods were that the gods would get angry, that they would get frustrated with humans, that they that thought the humans were in the way, and none of the stories were about a God whose anger ever moved towards love towards humans or care or concern towards humans at all. And certainly a God who time and time again chooses loyal love when the humans consistently choose the opposite, offering betrayal towards God, sometimes scorn towards God and animosity towards God. But God continues to turn towards them, to forgive them, and to love them. Yahweh is the one true God and the only God who's ever even been suggested to have hesed love for humanity. At this time, that was the only God Never before had anybody heard anything like that. There wasn't even a myth that compared when these people were hearing this for the first time. Chesed love, God's generous, generous actions of unswerving and steadfast loyalty, faithfulness, mercy, and kindness, even to the most undeserving. 
And I think, if we're honest, we all know that we are among the undeserving. And although that we're in a very different cultural context now than the people who were hearing Moses speak about these stories for the first time, we often have a skewed view of God the way the Israelites were wrestling with this skewed view of who the gods are and who this God might be. The world around them had expressed to them that the gods were angry, that the gods hated them, that the gods had to be appeased. And perhaps we should reflect on that because hasn't the world around us sometimes tried to tell us something about God that isn't true? Hasn't the world around us tried to tell us what gods we should be worshiping and those gods might come in many different forms? So in some ways, I think we can resonate with that confusion. Who is God? Who does God say God is? And so for some of us, the biggest takeaway from this conversation is to meditate on this truth that God is a compassionate and gracious God. That God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Because that is not the story we've all been telling ourselves, is it? About who God is and what God thinks about us. Perhaps we need to meditate on Psalm 136 that was mentioned in the video that we watched. God's love endures forever. 26 times. Pull that psalm open and maybe you just need to stay in there for a while to, to let that truth go from your head to your heart. But the thing about God's love is that it's active. It does something. It does things that can matter in such huge ways to us in our lives if we let it. Because, like I said at the beginning, we can't live into our role in God's story if we don't experience how deep God's love is for us. So here's three things that I think are important to note when it comes to what God's love does. And then some questions that we can take with us today. Okay, that's, that's what I want us to do. What are three things? Three things that God's love does. First, God's love has transformative power. Second, God's love expresses worth. Third, God's love is generative. So first, God's love has transformative power. All of us would say, I think, that there are things we want to change about ourselves, but also about the world around us. The most powerful force of change is the love of God. The enemy tends to use all other sorts of, of, of forces, right? Shame, guilt, fear, obligation, whatever it takes to try to motivate people in different ways. But God's love brings change inside and out. God's love has been the force behind the redemptive trajectory that I talked about last month, that, that God is inviting us to join this redemptive trajectory of God's story, to join in what God is already doing in the world around us. God's love is the force behind that, the transformative power. God is the main character of this story, and we all get to be supportive cast characters. The, the power to transform the most difficult people, the most difficult circumstances, the most difficult societal problems and structural issues, the power, the deepest, strongest power to change those things is the hesed love of God. God's love has this power to forgive even the gravest of sins and to heal even the deepest of brokenness. So whatever it is in your life, God's love has the power to forgive if we want that forgiveness. Whatever it is. God's love knows no boundary <laughs> on God's forgiveness. So some question, a question that we can ask ourselves. In what ways can I pray for God's love to bring transformation in my life and the world around me? In what ways can I pray for God's love to bring transformation in my life and the world around me? Because God's love has transformative power. Second, God's love expresses worth. The distinct love of Yahweh, as described here in the Torah, 
and throughout the Bible, is so different than all these other mythical gods, right? It's one that is expressing value to humans rather than worthlessness, like the other stories of the gods. God created humans in God's image and then has loyal, steadfast love for those humans. Crazy story at the time. This must mean that humanity is worth so much to God. God chooses to love even the most undeserving, and that love is what gives us worth. Not how good we can be. Of course, that's always something we come back to. Maybe I just need to be better. I just need to do better. I mean, we want to love our neighbors and follow God's heart of goodness and mercy and justice and patience, but we could never achieve our way to the worthiness we are offered by God's love. We could never achieve our way to the worthiness offered by God's love. God loves humans so much that God became a human. God becoming a human is the most radical way to express love and worth to us as humanity. So here's a question to take with you. Am I finding my worthiness in God's love for me or am I trying to find it from my own achievements or my lack thereof when it comes to what I have achieved? Am I finding my worthiness in God's love for me or am I trying to find it from my own achievements or lack thereof? Okay, third, God's love is generative. Like Tim said in the video, we when we experience the power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show hesed, hesed love back to God and to the people around us. The hesed love of God generates more hesed love in and through those who receive that love from God. It's generative, right? It doesn't run out. It's not like there's only so much to go around. It's generative, and that can be true for us in our lives as well. God's loyal love continues to love those even who betray God. Jesus gives clarity to how generative, just how generative this love truly is when he says we're to love our enemies. And he doesn't just say that. He goes on to show that when he goes to the cross, he's losing his life, and he's asking God to show mercy to the very people who are taking his life. I don't know about you, but I have found it difficult to love people, especially lately with all the stress that we're under. I mean, even the people I'm closest to, even the people I know that I love and I want to show that love to. I feel my patience run out and it's like this well of my heart has just completely run dry and I've got nothing. I'm on empty. Is anyone else finding themselves there? No amount of Frozen 2 or Daniel the Tiger Valentine's is going to fill up my heart enough with love that when I'm this depleted, I'm going to be able to do it, especially not for my enemies. That's just an absolute impossibility without this love being filled from God. The only answer, there's literally only one, in my opinion. When we run out of human love, the only answer is to receive anew the loyal, generative, hesed love of God. <laughs> That's the only way. I have tried other things, okay? I have tried working harder, giving more effort, coming up with reasons why I shouldn't be so bad at loving the people in my life, beating myself up for not being so loving. It just doesn't work. I really believe there's only one option, and that's intentionally receiving the love God has for us so that it can overflow from our lives onto the people around us. So here's some questions to end that with then. What rhythms do you have in your life to connect with Jesus and receive the love that God has for you? That's where it has to start. And then we can move to the next question, which is how are you intentionally letting God's hesed love flow through you onto the lives of the people right around you? How are you putting yourself in intentional spots where you can show that love to people because you've already received it from God? 
This is so important because we can't live into our role in God's story if we don't experience how deep God's love is for us. God's love is what gives us the power, the worthiness, and the amount of generative love needed to join God's redemption story. And I think that worship is a time that can help us focus on receiving that love. Musical worship can be one of those times, spending some time in God's presence. And so as we go into this time of worship, this is a time where we can receive that love that God has for us, that powerful generative love. Let this time of worship and communion be that space for you.